Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of sports and media with the world of technology. Today we're going to be diving into some pretty exciting topics that have been occupying the sports world over the summer. Uh, but first, we'd like to welcome all of our listeners back. I hope we've had a relaxing and wonderful summer break. I know that our guests have. They're looking very, very healthy on our uh, chat here, and we're looking forward to getting into the conversation. So without further ado, let me introduce our guests for the day. Starting off with our Sportsloft member company guest, Kristen Rogers from Tagboard, runs all the sports and media partnerships um, for Tagboard. She is an award-winning journalist and a former sports and news anchor at Fox 29, has uh, the silkiest voice that uh, you'll ever hear on the Sportsloft podcast. And she now helps Tagboard's clients across sports, media, and entertainment to hit their engagement, production, and sponsorship goals. Kristen, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Yanni, thank you so much. First time guest, but long time listener. Excited to dive into some fun topics with you today. I hope you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, and I hope you've got your uh, favorite sports moment of the week lined up. You know that's coming up. Oh, yeah. Uh, next, we'd love to welcome Matt Gentry. Matt is the managing director of 77 Sports Management, and he has over 20 years experience in comms, sportership, uh, sponsorship, uh, which is sports sponsorship, uh, brand partnerships, and media strategy. During his time at 19 Entertainment, uh, he helped to run the sports department and build brands for athletes such as uh, David Beckham, Lewis Hamilton, and Andy Murray. Um, you know, I've heard of some of those. Uh, today, he runs 77 Sports Management, which is a boutique sports marketing agency. Uh, and he set that up with his partners, Gawain Davis and the aforementioned tennis great, uh, Andy Murray. So, Matt, welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast and can't wait to, uh, can't wait to hear your insights. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. And finally, a longtime friend of the podcast, uh, one who regular listeners will recognize um, and a member of Sportsloft itself, uh, Andy Selby joins us. Andy needs no introduction, um, uh, but he probably does, given that I always get his title wrong. I think this is correct, given the last time that, that, that we spoke. Andy is the Chief Business Transformation Strategy Deployment Technology Information and Finance Officer for Sportsloft. Andy, is that right? I'll take that, yeah. Excellent. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be back. So, with that, let's jump into the first topic of conversation, which is the favorite sports moment of the week. Kristen, what's your favorite moment been? Yes, Yanni, I'm actually going to cheat. It's going to be two, but they're all under the same umbrella. Um, I just had a chance to go to, to the U.S. Open a few days ago and to see the rise of U.S. tennis back at the US Open has been so spectacular. I'm looking specifically to Coco Goff. I mean, following in Serena's- Coco. It's been absolutely amazing. I had chills when she when she won in straight sets in her last match. Um, and then I looked to uh, Ben Shelton and Tiafo. That match was absolutely, I have goosebumps thinking about it again. So being physically there and then seeing this action, this is probably my favorite US Open that I've seen in a long time. I can't look away. It's that good, um, but seeing the seeing the Americans make this rise, especially on home turf in New York, is absolutely incredible. And great to see the audiences really responding to it and rising to it and creating even more of a cauldron in Flushing. Yes, exactly. I mean, the in 2022 they set records. They're setting more records now here, both on viewership and attendance. It is it's truly the the pinnacle of what we need for for tennis right now, and I I absolutely love it. 
Fantastic. Matt? It's not necessarily a sort of a big moment in, in such, but it's it's Jude Bellingham and his Real Madrid sort of introduction. I've, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Real Madrid. One of our one of our female players plays there at the agency. Um, and it's it's sort of him as a person as much as a player. I mean, I, you know, he's, I think he's scored five times in his first four games, but a lot of the people at Madrid talk about him in glowing terms off the pitch. You know, say what you know, what a really bright, you know, kind, polite young man he is, and a real sort of role model. So, um, you know, I just think he he could be set for a really big season. I think possibly, you know, Ballon d'Or. You know, if he, you know, obviously carries on, it's. He's, uh, he started very well, but I just think, yeah, having read a little bit and seen lots and lots of clips, lots of short form clips, actually, which we can talk about later. Um, but yeah, I think he's he, interesting. I've done a lot of reading on this week on him and, you know, good on him. Yeah, certainly, certainly exciting to see an Englishman performing really well overseas as well. Traditionally, something that hasn't been um, a big, uh, uh, a big success factor for uh, British players going overseas. And good to see that trend starting to starting to change. Andy, what was your favourite moment? Good three points for Hull City away to Leicester is obviously the most important sporting moment of the week. Um, I knew Hull City was going to come up. There was no way we were avoiding that. I, at, risk of, at risk of somebody else also saying that, um, mine, which hopefully nobody else has gone for, is successfully hobbling over the line of a half marathon this weekend. Um, I'm just under two months out from running the New York Marathon, so... Being able to get around a half marathon at this point is hopefully a, a good sign. And um, yeah, I'll be sending everybody my fundraising link at some point, I'm sure. We'll make sure to put that in the comments of the podcast and uh, see how many people can contribute. But let's get into our conversation topics. Uh, we have a couple of really interesting things that have happened over the summer, and we've selected uh, a few of those to talk about um, the sports landscape, both in terms of business and what's actually happening on the pitch. The first part is talking about using the messy transfer as a starting point about how athletes are driving interest in sports leagues and business. But obviously this move has been huge for the, for the club and for the MLS. Uh, just today, Sports Pro reported that there was a significant uptick um, in the hundreds of thousands for Apple Plus's MLS subscriptions upon the announcement of Messi's, uh, uh, Messi's signing. So clearly there is an impact. Um, and diving into that, uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to talk about how Inter-Miami have managed to capitalize so well on the Messi transfer. Um, and also there are a couple of other instances that are, uh, uh, that are relevant, uh, such as players going to the Saudi Pro League to help build that up and help build up its profile. Um, and, uh, and we'll get into it. So Matt, you've been in the world of athlete representation and, uh, and sponsorship for, for a long time. What's your view about on the Messi transfer and how Inter Miami have managed to capitalize on that, uh, both for their team and for the league more generally? Um, I mean, look, they've done incredibly well. I think there's lots of sort of factors that have come together. I think, you know, I think you mentioned Apple being a sort of global broadcast partner, right? I think that's, that's played beautifully into this. Um, I think they were a big factor um, financially in that transfer happening in the first place. Uh, I think Messi's long-term brand partners, Adidas, were also you know a big factor in it. You know, with their sort of sports marketing power behind it, um, the fact he's a pretty good footballer still probably helps. Um, I was reading actually, he's so his when he signed his, I mean, there's only one sort of social media metric, but he had something like 480 million Instagram followers 
you know, where the MLS has about 4 million. Um, so again, it's only one isolated sort of metric, but it just shows you how sort of clubs nowadays can look to really leverage star power of players and tap into new audiences. I mean, because you could argue that, you know, players like Messi and Ronaldo are sort of, you know, content channels first almost versus athletes second, you know, such is the sort of star power that they bring. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible, really. And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Especially looking at how um, uh, the the marketing mix is changing over time, and how a lot of brands and sponsors are now looking actually to incorporate more around influencer marketing and individual athlete, as opposed to necessarily league and team level. Um, Andy, what's what's your feeling, uh, and what have you what have you been hearing in the market about how athletes specifically can mix in? To that, um, uh, to that sponsorship mix for leagues and for and for clubs. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess it varies by different sports, and might I'd be curious to get your take on the different dynamics. Obviously, in football, there's an extent to which if something's a club deal, it's supposed to be three players and they're all featured equally, um, and it's hard to do anything that's particularly individual. But actually, in the case of into Miami, I had a scroll through their Instagram, and of the last 100 posts, 30 of them featured Messi, and 20 of them were just solo Messi pictures. Um, so clearly able to lean into that very heavily. Um, I guess it's where you bring a partner into it, where you know the balancing of use of players comes into it. Um, I was in the States a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that was being discussed a lot around this was NIL and college athletes coming in and being creators themselves as well. Obviously, Messi doesn't have to worry about recording content and everything himself. He's got a team around him. Um, but interesting to see the rise of college athletes also having to be creators alongside being athletes now to make the most of you know partnership deals that they're now able to sign. Absolutely. And, and Kristen, I'd like to ask you about this because you've obviously been, you have more experienced than any of us having been sort of camera side for, for, for a long time and having spoken to athletes and presumably seen this journey over time while you were involved um, in interviewing talent and in speaking to speaking to the uh, to the players in seeing them become more and more media savvy, seeing them become more and more representative of their own brands. Uh, uh, what's your view on on kind of the athlete emergence? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And it's it's one of my my favorite things about social media is that now literally everyone has a platform to be able to create their own brand. Or to Andy's point, if you're a college athlete and have that NIL, you have the ability to, um, to sell yourself and to, to actually get paid on the back end too. But I think it was really interesting actually going back to the pandemic when all of a sudden athletes who their main platform is to play, you know, week after week, day after day on a field, no longer had that opportunity. So now we saw them shift their platform to podcasts, to YouTube videos, to a way to continue to connect and build their brand that's off the pitch or off the field. Um, and since the pandemic, we've now seen both of those live at the same time. Um, we've seen athletes continue to grow with podcasts, to grow with um uh, with videos and partnerships and really take control over what their brand is instead of relying on someone else to do it for them. Now, not only can they control what they do on the field, but they can control exactly what they say, where they say it, how they say it. And to Andy's point, they can also make money off of it. So 
I love it because now we're able to get it directly from the athlete instead of having to go hunt down a specific interview or only get, you know, when you're in the locker room with an athlete, sometimes you only get about 30 seconds with them. Now you're able to get three, three hours with them if they have a podcast weekly. And it's, it's really cool to be able to see um, everything through their eyes. And then obviously also benefits them uh, for, for the revenue side as well too. Absolutely. Matt, how much of your time is actually spent speaking to athletes and, and, and educating them and, uh, and also helping to build their brands individually as they start to become their own, not start to become, this has been happening for a while, but as they are more cognizant of the fact that they become their own businesses? A lot, a lot of time. Actually, you, you know, even from a very young age, you know, a lot of the athletes we would speak to, even when you're recruiting, you're, you're laying out not only plans for the next few years, but sometimes it's almost retirement planning, even when they're teenagers. Um, you just need a lot of thinking to go into every step because, you know, we're athletes real short on time, right? So you, I've always found you've got to really justify why you're asking them to do something, you know, where they could be on the pitch training or whatever. So it's, it's making those choices and you have to say, look, we're doing this because of X and it will benefit you because of Y later on. And it's, so, you know, we spend a lot of time strategically planning, you know, all of this. So every day I would say you would speak to, to athletes you know, and their entourage, parents, family, whatever, depending on their age. Speaking of entourages, how easy is it to get that message through? Because you still want that individuality to shine, right? Like you, you, you don't want to turn them into cookie cutters. You don't want them to be, you know, the same as everybody else. But also you want to make sure that they're, I guess towing the line is the wrong term, but you want to make sure that they're not doing anything too controversial. You know, there was a big, uh, conversation recently in the U.S. about uh, Draymond Green, the NBA player for the uh, Golden State Warriors, who has a podcast that goes out immediately after every game. And a lot of media outlets find that quite challenging because they're like, well, hang on a second. You know, this this should be this should be the preserve of the broadcaster, of the analyst, of the interviewer. This shouldn't be the preserve of the athlete to kind of go on and give analysis immediately. That takes away from our benefits. How How do you approach that with your athletes, Matt? So I think the authenticity point first, I think, you know, we've always, I mean, Andy's probably, Andy Murray's case in point on this, where, you know, he's possibly someone who's not been viewed to have sort of towed the line, I guess, or, you know, I think, I think you know, years gone by, you know, you'd have had lots and lots of sponsors and, and you'd have been told to say nothing, be vanilla, not offend anyone, and therefore, you know, max out as many sponsors as you can. And I think that's shifted over the last few years and, and it's a good thing. Whereas now you're seeing a lot of players, um, you know, using their channels for social justice, social causes, greater good, environmental issues, and and they're not afraid to speak out and have a voice. And I think people value that that personality and the fact that they want to say something. And I think actually brands now are are more likely to get behind athletes who share a sort of vision with them versus you know someone who doesn't really say much or do much and is you know you could argue is not really. Um, you know, pushing it. So I think, you know, and it's also a lot easier for an athlete if they really believe something to be, you know, natural and true to themselves and speak their mind um, versus someone who is having to sort of watch what they say just because they don't want to offend sponsors. So, yeah, I mean, I think I've always found that, you know, just, and, and again, it, I guess it then comes back to, you know, finding the right partners for athletes in the first place rather than just, looking around to see who will pay what is actually you get that marriage right in the first instance and it can be a long 
and lucrative, but you know, you don't necessarily look at it that way, but it could be a long lasting partnership you can build lots from. I think that's that's how we've always tended to build things. Yanni, if I can jump in on this, I think yeah, it's please. fascinating from the media side of things, from the standpoint that um, I actually like it. I know you were talking about that Draymond Green example of, you know, maybe not, you know, having to compete against broadcasters, but from uh, from the from the media side of things, I love it because it creates more content for us to be able to um, uh, to create around. I look at uh, Los Angeles quarterback Matthew Stafford. He just had to address something that his wife said on her personal podcast about him maybe not gelling with the other uh, players in the team or, or players on the team in the locker room. And it's it's so interesting now for those to become their own media points. But at the same time, now as the media, the breadth of what you're able to cover just grows because athletes are giving you that unprecedented um, access to their life. Uh, again, through all their own channels that they're creating. Mm, absolutely, and I guess the, the the ultimate test of this is is going to be in, a, in in some way the Saudi Pro League, right? Which we're now seeing the Saudi Pro League is is attracting some of the biggest football players in the world through um, very very lucrative contracts, and they're banking on the fact that the following of those players is going to build the profile of the team and 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 create fans and build the uh, build the actual business of the league itself right and we've seen obviously huge names go and huge names in the mix as well in terms of rumors Mo Salah and Liverpool obviously being the latest one I think 300 million was the latest the latest number that um, that somebody mentioned you don't know how much stock to put in that but Andy what's what's your view on that will 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 the SPL crack the code is it is is going after the the, the biggest names in world football the the right way to go is is very interesting because there's always kind of thinking and, and prepping for a discussion in this. I was looking at it in terms of one, the quality of the league, two, the quality of the best players in it, and then three, the competitiveness of the league. And you know, if you compare the Saudi League to the MLS, it's two very different approaches. Um, MLS have clearly brought some of that star power, but they've put a real focus on the competitiveness. Um, Andy Marston in Sportpunt made a really good point, which was, you know, MLS, you've had nine different champions over the last 10 years. Whereas I think what we'll see with the Saudi league is that the PIF owned clubs are doing a lot of the share of the spending. And so we expect them to be dominant, you know, hopefully for the sake of the league, there's competition between them. Then on the point around Messi, which I think you know, we mentioned up top, it's interesting to look at Messi, Jordi Alba and Busquets come into one team in the MLS and you know the what the league has done to facilitate that for that specific club. You've got a club that's gone from being bottom of the division to now you know people questioning is this going to be a dominant team in, in the MLS for the next few years. So um, on that kind of star power, competitiveness and quality of the league, it's, it'll be interesting how they balance the three because if all the Saudi teams have elite players across the entire squad, then that's a very different product to the MLS where you have your designated players who like Messi who are maybe at an elite level, but then you've got some players who are maybe lower championship league one standard as well. Yeah, just just to add to that, Yanni, I mean, I'm, I sort of know a few people connected to the, to the league and, and from what I'm hearing over the next, you know, there's money aside at the levels they're spending at the moment for the next three, four, five, six windows, um, you know, so which is, you know, which is very different, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, there's all, lots of good, good players in every single team in the league. The average age will probably come down of players and it becomes a lot more competitive. So um, it then becomes interesting in terms of, you know, how does that then rank in terms of other leagues, right? In terms of broadcast viewing figures, because 
you know, there's going to be so many stars in there and, you know, arguably, you know, stars, you know, who are not sort of, you know, 30 plus. Um, so it, it will be interesting. I think, you know, the fact that the Premier League and managers and lots of other leagues around the world are sort of, are sort of playing it down a little bit makes you think that they're all, they're all sort of slightly worried by it. And, and you can see why, right? Because certainly a lot of players are, are evaluating it. Another, another interesting point, and sorry for throwing this at you guys, but it came to me as we were, as we were speaking. The, the, um, as, as Andy mentioned, the point about uh, three players joining, three sort of um, high-level European players joining the same team in Inter-Miami, a lot of that has been put down to the involvement of David Beckham and sort of, you know, the fact that, they can, uh, that there is that star power there. Obviously, it's Miami. But we see something similar as well in college sports with the introduction of the, of, of the, of the transfer window, um, the transfer portal, sorry, and um, Deion Sanders, the, the former um, uh, uh, cornerback for the uh, Dallas Cowboys and Atlanta Falcons and outfielder for the, for the Yankees coming in, uh, coming and becoming the head coach. And they've gotten the biggest recruiting class. And so... Um, I wonder if there's an element of that star power and that brand building that has happened over the career of an athlete that then getting involved in the actual ownership group or in the leadership group of an organization can attract other star athletes as well. Um, Matt, you, you worked with, with David back in, back in 19 and, you know, you've, you, you sort of help athletes to also focus on their future plans, uh, as opposed to just now, do you see a, a, a trend for athletes to, to, to go into, um, management and organization at a bigger level and sort of use that network to attract more stars and, and, and benefit each other? For sure, I think. I mean, it, it depends on the athletes and I guess what they want. You know, some are sort of not bothered, right, and they want to finish and, and, and do something else. But the majority of them are keen to try and, you know, utilise their network. And, you know, so Andy, for example, might, you know, has the opportunity to look at um, only tennis events, you know, if he wants to do that. There's been a couple of conversations with, with Premier League football clubs, um, him getting involved in an investment capacity there. Um, I mean, he's been quite active as an early stage investor as well. So it's something that, you know, he has 50 plus stakes in, in early stage health tech wellness. So, you know, he has a track record for it and it's something he wants to do more of. But, you know, ultimately, as, you know, as an athlete, you want to try and, you know, as you build through your career, you want to try and own and build properties for yourself, right? So actually, you, you know, post career, then you can, you know, you've got something there that if you want to sell it, you can do. If you want to build it, you can do, you know, so it's, it's all about, you know, trying to build that. You know, you see a lot of a lot of talent now, sort of top level talent, having their own production companies, you know, um, which is a smart move, right? Because you can then control the output. You can mandate partners to, you know, spend money and actually create their own partner content with that vehicle as well. It's short form, long form docs, all of this stuff, right? It's it's an element of control, but it's also ownership. I think you know, you just look at LeBron, and I think Spring Hill was valued at close to a billion dollars when they sold, you know, a stake of that, and it's. You know, as an athlete production agency, yes. absolutely. And you know, there's there's a there's a further point on that. Um, and Andy, I'd love to get your view on this. Uh, great example, a uh, friend friend of the podcast and of Sportsloft Apex Capital just announced uh, the, that they raised um, fifty million uh, for a, 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 in funding to create a, a, a sports 
uh, a sports fund focusing on uh, early stage. All of that money has been raised from um, elite athletes, uh, you know, athletes that, that all of us have heard of, including Lando Norris, a, a huge number of Formula One and Premier League football players. Um, so... Do, do, do you, th- and, and, and we saw the same trend, obviously we've seen the same trend in the U.S. for a while with Kevin Durant in 35 Ventures, uh, Andre Iguodala's famously involved, you know, Matt just mentioned LeBron and all of his activities. Um, and it, it, are, are athletes starting to see early stage investing as, as um, something cool to get involved with? Yeah, I mean, potentially that's it, right? When I was over in the US back when I was working for Sapphire, there was a lot of athlete investing going on then, and that seems to be an element for it. I'll, you know, I'll defer to Matt on how how much of it is driven by, like the social flex of being invested in successful startups versus you know actually this is a credible asset class to be involved in, and they're doing this for financial return. I think what's very interesting for me looking at the athlete investment groups is traditionally how venture capital would work is that you have your LPs, they get to know you, they trust you, and then they give you the capital. And then the VC firm is making the investment decisions. And, you know, seven years down the line, all of the LPs who may have been talking regularly with the investor, but they get their financial return. When people are talking about bringing athletes into the decision-making process, it's potentially very interesting because on the one hand, you should have some unique insight in terms of you know, on the performance side of sports or other aspects. Um, but I wouldn't ex- be expecting a, a current athlete to be doing the financial due, due diligence and everything that a VC would do. So I'd be curious, Matt, to get your view on like, where's, how do you find the balance between involving the athletes, because ultimately it's their capital, versus making sure it's not just what, you know, might strike an interest and actually there's, you know, there's business now going into the decision making process as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not an easy one because you say it's it's you're you're asking you know in some cases for the athlete to part with you know a decent amount of money, um, so you know you want to make sure that um, you know they are sufficiently educated in the space because it you know it does take some learning. I think we've been you know when we're behind you know the US you know they've been doing this for twenty thirty years the athletes there right and I think. Um, you know, Andy started doing this six, seven years ago, and and there's more and more, as you say, coming through the Players Fund, which was launched. I was at the launch last night for that, um, and there's more and more. It's great, and actually, you know, one thing I would say, you know, things like Sapphire are great, but I think you need quite a lot of money to to get in there, right? You know, you need you know several million dollars to be part of a fund, whereas it seems to be more now that they actually there's a much lower barrier to entry, but they're trying to encourage that a bit more, which I think is a good thing. Um, but as you say, it's important. The education piece is important. You know, athletes' time is obviously limited. So I think, you know, the early the early parts of it really is, and with any early stage business, a lot of it is around hype and awareness, right? Is that's, that's what these early stage companies need to thrive and keep moving on. So I think that's good for the athletes to... So to look at that, and I think you know, you sort of you sort of take it as an individual basis. You know, one athlete might be really into, you know, you know, health tech, for example, and it might you know might get, that might really sort of float their boat. And I think then you then you sort of look at how you can do a bit more with the athlete and the particular the, the particular company or the or the co-founder. Um, you know, at, you know, just an example for for us, which has, has been successful, is is Castor, which is a brand in the in the um, in the UK now, which is six seven years old, and, and we got back in there in 2019 when they were pretty small. Um, you know, and Andy was looking at you know where he goes next in terms of clothing, and it was 
you know, do you stick with the traditional, you know, the, the Nike or the Adidas and you get paid up front and, you know, nice big check. And then when you retire, thanks very much, you know, versus, you know, th their pitch was very much, well, look, here's a 10 year deal. Let's create, you know, a business together, a tennis business together. You know, here's a chunk of equity, you know, so when the business does well, you'll do well, plus, you know, a host of other things. So it's just, you just evaluate things a bit differently. And I think also depends on the, on the, on the athlete life stage i guess as well it's sort of it sort of fitted with andy's sort of life plan and and what he wanted to do post-career but um lots of opportunities I, I think this is an area that's going to grow and grow and grow in the in europe with a lot of athletes for sure absolutely well we'll move on to our second topic um changing consumption habits is short form king um and and this comes from a recent uh, uh a recent story about senior staff at uh, youtube having expressed concern that, that uh, shorts, which is the um, YouTube's answer to uh, the short form video um, uh, coming, rising through TikTok, uh, is risking cannibalizing its core business. And uh, some of the analysis suggests that content creators are making fewer long form videos and focusing more on uh, short form content uh, for consumers to snack on. So what does this actually mean in terms of shifting consumption for, uh, for sports um, and, and how are people consuming it? Um, I can certainly say from, from personal experience with, uh, with um, my kids and, and nieces and nephews that very, very few of them will sit through a live sports program anymore. Um, you know, and they and, and to our previous point, they will tend to follow and, and, and learn stuff through the athletes who are participating rather than through some of the uh, some of the um, uh, accounts and uh, of, of the actual leagues and teams themselves. So, Kristen, you guys at Tagboard work with a lot of rights holders. You work with a lot of people in terms of their, their, their content production. Are they how, how much do you see them moving towards? quicker, faster, more efficient, short form content production to be able to connect with this audience compared to compared to traditional, uh, traditional longer form content. Yeah, Yanni, there's no question. Snackable content is the, the premium of content nowadays. Um, I myself, I'm a millennial, I'm across every social media platform. When I tell you that TikTok is the most uh, like obsessive platform that I have been a part of, that is one where I, I can go on Twitter, I can go on Instagram, I'm fine. If I go on TikTok, I will find myself wasting like 30 minutes just scrolling through videos. Just because it's so Well, I have to set a timer on myself because that's how dangerous it is, right? Like it just really sucks you in. And it's because you get little bites of things. It's like going to a party, right? Instead of having that sit down dinner, it's like having a bunch of little appetizers. You get really a taste of everything that makes you, really fills your cup the, the same way that uh, a really kind of, I'm using a bad analogy of a dinner at this point, but then like a, a full sit down dinner of like just one thing. Um, when it comes to creating some of that content right now, I think it's it's really interesting. And what we're finding is we'll work with clients that will create that long form content, but then we'll break it down bit by bit as that kind of carrot to dangle in front of the rest of their audience on a social media platform. Um, for example, I look for a lot of podcasts that we work with and we'll see them put together a full podcast. but. One of my, my favorite uses of this short form content is a way to drive back to that long form content. In this case, there would be a CTA out on social that said, hey, tweet us your hottest take, we'll show it in the podcast. Then they bring in all of those social answers and comments on the podcast, 
clip that video from the podcast and then retweet it with the original CTA. So you're creating this cyclical conversation that is all driven by short form, but hopefully it's leading back to, to long form because that's still where you're gonna get that really meaty subject. Um, hopefully that, that carrot is enticing enough for, for you to go back and watch a full hour. Yeah, that was gonna be one of my questions for you, Kristen, off the back of that is, you know, part of it is the media mix of how much you're doing short form versus long form, but how much is long form content changing because short form is increasingly more of a media mix? Like, how much are we recording this podcast to try and get a sound bite? Or, yeah. you know, what's on TV? Everyone's been briefed. We need something snappy on this so that it can go out on short form. Exactly. Yeah. It's shorter comments. Um, it's something that you think can go viral. Um, and really, it's also about specifying and, and really narrowing the focus down because, and no one wants to go watch. Um, you know, a, a program anymore that is going to give the entire breadth of what's going on in the sports world, right? We are interested in what we're interested in. So I'm going to go want to watch something that is specific on Premier League football or specific on the NFL here in the States, um, which is why I think we saw the rise of alt streams at the same time. And I think we're actually seeing that in short form content right now, which is to take the same piece of IP and then spin it up in a way that is so specific for your audience that they're going to be more loyal to you because they're going to want to come back to, to that exact show or that exact take. Um, I think also we are, are people that we want our own opinions to be validated, which is why as viewers, we tend to seek those that say the same things as us. So the more kind of alt streams or the more short form content that you can spin up around the same piece of IP, but it is so specific, you're going to find people that are going to glom onto that and they're going to be more loyal to the content that you continue to create around that very specific subject. For sure. And how, um, Matt, to this, this one's for you. How are athletes recognizing that value of short form content and sort of upping the, upping, uh, their, the, the production values? We talked about all of them having production companies just now, but also making sure that they provide stuff to, to engage that conversation with the uh, with the fan base and generate generate more interest because it's difficult to produce a lot of short form content. You know, people say you know you need to spend an hour for every minute that goes out, which means that it is an investment of time to make sure that you do that. But that is what's driving sort of a lot of the conversation and a lot of the interest from uh, today's audience. Yeah, I mean, I think I think look, you, know, you would take advice from someone like Kristen or people like that in in, in the team who you know, would help. So, you know, athletes would, you know, work with brand partners and they would give time and, and they would be sort of guided as to, you know, how best to then, you know, cut cut material up or, or use material, you know, what's best for, for TikTok versus Instagram versus, you know, LinkedIn, if you're doing something on there, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I think that they're, they're conscious of it. I think, you know, just this the way we're set up as an agency, we would lean on somebody who would then tell us, you know, by the way, this is, you know, this is, this is the appropriate content for, for that. I mean, I read, I read a stat somewhere that, and, and going back to your anecdote with your kids and, and the weird and wonderful things that they watch on, on TV, they say it's your kid's age times two is their attention span. Huh. Um, okay. Which, <laughs> which I, 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 yeah, which, which probably explains why my kids are crying. In, in minutes, seconds or hours. I was going to say seconds, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that, 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 uh, that is, a, that suddenly explains so many things. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. But Kristen, to, to that point, Matt, Matt makes a very interesting point. And this is something that, that 
I have personally found myself getting frustrated with, and this is probably, you know, you know, middle, middle-aged man having a rant here, but, you know, e- even on TikTok where, or, you know, um, Instagram Reels or something like that, where you're talking about, you know, one to two minutes worth of content, the content will be clipped so that kind of the key bit is right at the front to attract your attention, and then they go into the full video clip, and that key content is watched again. And I, I, I just, in order to attract your attention and keep you to watch that whole thing, how much of that is, are, are people actually recognizing, investing in, and building in to be able to capture but also hold attention? And how much, um, uh, how do you guys help to advise your clients to, to, to get that right? Yeah. First of all, the, the the former journalist in me, I actually hate some of those clips because they're usually taken right. They're taken out of context. They're taken yep. to um, to to grab your attention. Um, but sometimes, you know, I, I one of my biggest pet peeves is when people take a clip that is, you know, I, I you could ask a simple question, take my answer, and then use it for something else, right? Um, essentially, just you know, changing up up that content. So those really grind my gears, but they're very effective because you do want to continue to say, continue to watch to see what were they saying around this. But um, I think what we're finding with this short form content right now. Again, you're trying to create so much content, but it can't be done in the traditional workflow that um, you do to create content that goes on linear broadcasts or even live streams, right? A lot of this has to be done in away from hardware on a cloud production platform, purely because it's allowing you to be more flexible to spin up more of this content with less time, with less resources, right? It, it feels silly when you think about the traditional workflow to get a show on air, a show on broadcast on linear. You know, it's a full control room with hardware and everything, right? That That's too much for what you're trying to do. If you want something fast, easy, and really effective and engaging, it needs to be done in the cloud because it's going to be so much quicker and you're going to be able to spin up you know, I hate this, but it's it's more quantity than quality at this point. Um, you know, you're trying to put out just a ton of content, see what sticks, and then you can start to create a better content plan in terms of, hey, we put this, you know, this one little soundbite out there that really worked. So let's continue to, to do this. But you just can't do it in the traditional workflow anymore because the way that we consume media is changing. So the way that you create media has to change as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings up an interesting sort of follow-on point, right? Which is the which is the the, the platform battles, uh, and you know we're, we're we're seeing this. We started at the top of this conversation talking about um, you know shorts versus YouTube, but you know we've also seen um, uh, Threads be launched as a challenger to to X. I'm still going to struggle getting my head around that as opposed to Twitter, but you know Threads being launched as a challenger to X, um, and uh, and kind of this all of the platforms trying to figure out how they're going to battle against TikTok and like how engaging it is and you know how how different it is andy how what do you what do you envisage as kind of the ultimate output of this short form content battle um and where do you see the where do you see the future of the uh, uh of the platforms in the next five to ten years not 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 to throw you know a really big question at you but you know <laughs> Right. Is that you basically asking me if TikTok's going to get banned or not? And if it does, we're getting to that. We're getting to that in a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's very interesting. You know, the article you flagged was talking about is YouTube Shorts pulling people away from the core products and the core products which which monetizes more effectively. But you know, at the same time, one they want to be able to compete with TikTok. You know, 
maybe doing, I can't remember when, YouTube Shorts launched, I think maybe it was summer two years ago now. Um, maybe they were a bit slow on it, but I think there's probably been instances where Facebook responded to something they saw was trending, built, basically mimicked it and then did so very successfully. And yeah, I think, you know, whether it's Instagram Reels or YouTube Shorts, if, if the banning of TikTok is something that did actually happen and TBC, whether it does, then it logically makes sense for those two groups to be positioning themselves so that they're best placed. I think with something like Threads, for example, where it's a new platform, people are just trying to figure out what should the content be. In a lot of cases, they're just posting the same content as Twitter, right? So um, I th this, you know, with Reels and YouTube Shorts, there's an element to which if the content on them is, is the same and actually I see the little TikTok icon on most of the stuff I used to see on YouTube Shorts before I deleted the app. It, may, it logically makes sense for those platforms to put themselves in that position where the same content can be used and they can try and get a piece of that pie. Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fascinating sort of um, battle or battle might be the wrong word, but it's a fascinating um, challenge over the next few years to see how people use different platforms and where they where they drive the 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 best benefits um matt how careful do athletes have to be um back to that authenticity point and back to that figuring out how to use different platforms how can they tailor the messages to different platforms um in order to extract the best without putting themselves at risk of getting cancelled or you know putting themselves in a, in, a, in a dangerous in a dangerous position that could affect their livelihoods yeah it's not easy you won't actually i mean it's it's a little bit trial and error um i think with it um i think athletes getting comfortable with with the platforms um you know they, they're quite they're quite harsh places most of them um especially the likes of x you know just in terms of you know, the last thing an athlete wants to do after losing a match is then be told by, you know, lots of people who've bet lots of money on them that they, they're effing useless and X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's really, it's really, it just takes, you know, a while, I think, for an athlete to sort of find their feet with it, find their right tone of voice. So, you know, we always encourage sort of little and often at the start um, and just to sort of, you know, don't go too mad with it, you know, and just, and just see how you get on with it, I think is 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 probably the the best way of doing it we you know we never sort of force anyone to do anything on any channel you know and and actually like some of the older clients for example we work with you know TikTok, they just you know don't understand it right and so they don't sort of go near it um which is probably a wise thing um so so yeah i think it's i think it's sort of gently we sort of gently lead them but and look and, and by all means we'd, we would definitely take outside counsel on on some of it as well which which speaks which speaks to kind of the nature of the the nature of the beast, right? How big of an opportunity it is, how much athletes these days have to be content creators and have to be influencers as well as being really good at the sport that they, they, they practice, which is which is a lot to ask of a young person. But then they've also grown up in this environment, right? And they've probably tried and tested a few things naturally and organically that our generation well Andy, Andy and Krista are much, much younger, but, you know, uh, at least the um, uh, older folks have had to figure out over time, right? So do you find a different mat, difference, Matt, between the, the, the older players and, you know, I hate to put Andy Murray in that, in that bracket, but kind of the older players and the younger, the younger sort of athletes who are coming through who sort of intuitively have more of an understanding of, of short form content and how they can utilize it to its best effect? For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, you know, well as some of the younger ones we look at, you know, there's more, you know, esports, for example, TikTok is more their thing. Whereas, you know, for Andy, where we've, we've sort of cultivated this entrepreneurial, um, 
sort of reputation, I guess, given all the sort of investments he's done, something like a LinkedIn on a social media platform is, is, is much better for him. And actually, you know, it is a good outreach tool for us to, to pick partners and, and actually new business as well. It's actually an interesting an interesting tool. So, so yes, it's very much courses for courses on that one. Hmm. And Chris, I want to I want to bring this back back to you and to kind of start start wrapping this conversation. But you know, we've been talking about about short form and the benefits and risks of it. But that surely doesn't mean that long form is dead. In fact, you know, it, it's the, the the one piece of long form content that everybody keeps bringing up and keep keeps bringing back to is 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 drive to survive and the impact that's had on on Formula One and its success. You know, there are a lot of instances in the U.S. as well, hard knocks and you know, last chance you and stuff like that. That's 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 really relevant. I would argue that that one of the things that Liberty Media have done really, really well is actually set up all of the teams and the infrastructure within Formula One to capitalize through short form on the success that Drive to Survive engendered, which is tremendously important and something that Drive to Survive alone would not have managed to do. But nonetheless, the value of that is 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 really significant. So how how are you how are your clients and how are you guys kind of helping people to navigate through um, not forgetting long form as a driver, not as short form driving to long form necessarily, but long form as a driver of um, athlete profiles, engagement of fans and, and sort of generation of new fans. Yeah, I, I think in the States, we're in a very interesting um, position when it comes to content right now because of the SAG writer strike that's going on here in the States. So all of these shows that were supposed to come out or movies that were supposed to come out for this fall, for this winter, the spring, they're all pushed back a year. So we know in the States for the next 12 months, our content is going to be controlled by three things, documentaries, sporting events, and reality TV, because those are all things that aren't going to involve writers. So to your point, we know that that's gonna be paramount and we're working with our clients to figure out the best strategies when it comes to creating more content in those atmospheres, um, because we know that that's gonna be something that is gonna be so prevalent. So to your point for a drive for survive, right? That those kind of documentaries are going to be at the forefront of what we're gonna see for the next 12 months. Um, my personal opinion is that stories really need to follow a few simple rules when it comes to the ease, as I call it. They need to be engaging, right? Bring in that audience voice. They need to be educational. They need to be emotional, or they just need to be entertaining. So anything that our clients are doing, they need to fit within one of those three, e, one of those four E's, excuse me. We're helping them create that efficiency behind it. Those, those, um, uh, engaging moments as well too, to bring in that fan voice. But at the end of the day in the States, it's a really interesting uh, time for us because we know that if you give unprecedented access in a documentary, if you create that engaging live premiere around a reality show, or just really take advantage of, of sports right now that you're going to be able to hit a home run. Makes makes a ton of sense. To, to which to which point, my question to Andy is: When is the Sports Loft documentary coming out? Oh, did anybody watch that? No. Well, well, people listen to the podcast. Me, me, me <laughs> just the camera up in the top corner of the room here, and it's just me doing lots of Zoom calls with startups in the US. Um, yeah. I, I think we'll we'll stick to the podcast and the the event and and doing some nice dinners around major industry events. I think it's uh, you know you need different skill sets for different forms of content, and I think that's where we're well suited. And I think you know I I don't see us doing a TikTok channel either at any point in the near future. But I don't know, Yanni, maybe you've got hidden talent for that. So 
Let's see. Just a, just a question to everyone, I guess, on, on the sort of sports doc. Do you see there being a sort of fatigue given the sort of golf, tennis, you know, every sport is now trying to copy this drive to survive. And, you know, at some point, is there too much of that stuff around? I think as long as you give unprecedented access, something that you've never seen before, people are going to want to come back to it. But I don't think you can copy and paste the same formula for every single sport, for every single athlete, because no offense to everyone out there, but it's maybe not always the most engaging or entertaining story. Um, so, I mean, I would rather watch a story about a cricket player that I know nothing about, but that has an incredible story than just another copy and paste of, I'm a huge tennis fan, but another tennis player, right? So I think it's about finding, giving, giving great access, but then finding a story no matter what sport it's under. Maybe that is gonna be short form content though, to, to help ease some of that fatigue when it comes to long form too though. And I think to, to, to piggyback on that, that point and, and the conversation that we've been having, not that anybody cares about the host's uh, view, but I'll, I'll share it anyway. Uh, I think that um, you know, the, the, the balance for, for rights holders, who are the ones who are most likely going to be commissioning these kinds of things, is, is, is finding the stories of individual athletes um, and individual personalities versus promoting the entire league or team or whatever it is that, 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 you're, that you're covering, right? Um, and I think the ones that have been most successful uh, have have a common thread throughout them, whether you're talking about um, uh, The Last Dance or you're talking about Drive to Survive or you're talking about, you know, Welcome to Wrexham or, you know, any, any one of the most successful. I think the common thread there is that they really uncovered something that even fans of the sport didn't know, but also provided a lot of context for people who weren't fans of the sport or that team to get into in a way that they couldn't. Uh, so, for example, with Formula One, it was the fact, you know, it was the, the fact of how a team works, how you're constantly battling, not just with the other eight, 19 drivers on the grid, but also your own, your very own teammate. Um, what the risk is uh, inherently in driving a car very fast with 19 other cars on the same track, you know, the risk of the risk of death. It's it's, it's it doesn't really exist in many other many other sports. Um, similarly, with Welcome to Wrexham, you had the story of not just the team itself and the promotion and obviously the incredible last minute, but you had the story of uh, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds and McElhinney coming in and taking over the team and sort of building it from scratch in, you know, in, in, in the middle of Wales. You know, those kinds of things are things that can resonate with folk. Um, but, you know, just, just, to, just to close on that point, Matt, I think you raise a very good point. I, I don't think we'll see a change to it. Uh, I think I think um, rights holders and athletes will continue to tell those long form stories, but fighting that dynamic between telling the league or team story versus identifying somebody specific or a specific storyline that will appeal to the fan base and putting that front and center, even if it's not the most corporate or the most sort of payback to the league itself, that's going to be the challenge in boardrooms and in decision making that's going to identify whether the content is going to work or not long term. So on that note, we will wrap up. Uh, all that remains uh, for me is to uh, do my usual plugs, which is to say that if you like what you were listening to, please make sure to subscribe to uh, the Sports Loft Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a rating and a like. Make sure to go to our web website, sportsloft.co, and sign up for our newsletter. And also make sure to uh, follow us on social at sportsloftHQ. A huge thank you to our three guests. Um, fantastic to have you on board. Andy, thank you for coming back to the podcast. Great to be back, Yanni. Thank you very much.
Kristen, brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Yanni. And Matt, fantastic to have you on as well. Thank you so much for joining the Sports Loft Podcast. Cool. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. Goodbye.